This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello, and welcome to the Legal Lounge, where we now release new episodes every Monday. If you haven't heard previous shows, there's plenty of content for you. If you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries, or you're training to be a lawyer, you can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, private client solicitors Edward Rees and Amy Johnson dispel common misconceptions relating to wills, administration of estates and lasting powers of attorney. Topics include common law marriage, the importance of having a will in place, when someone can bring a claim against the estate and is there actually a reading of the will. Hello, I'm Edward and I'm joined today by my colleague Amy who is a solicitor in our private client team in Shrewsbury. So hello, Amy. Hi, Edward. I have to say you are an absolute hero because you have stepped into the breach valiantly right at the last minute with with literally no more than half an hour's notice you have volunteered to come and talk on this topic so that's amazing so you came up with the the, the topic for today at very short notice so just tell me what it is that you thought we should we should have a chat about today the topic is dispelling common misconceptions because speaking to clients you tend to find common themes of things that they don't quite understand or terminology that they use incorrectly. And I thought it was important that everyone has the correct information available to them. So these are things that have come up when people have called uh, or or we've met with them and, and, and they want to talk about wills or in many cases it would be when when you know a, a loved one has died and we're helping them to sort out the estate administer the estate yes especially because it's an emotional time for clients as well so they're not always thinking the best so we've got a few headings and uh, i've come across uh, some of these one or two of them are, are new to me they do come up and it'd be quite interesting to sort of trace back why it is that people might think uh, that you do this thing or you don't do do this thing. So let's kick off with uh, the topic of common law marriage. That's a good one, isn't it? Because people talk about that a bit, don't they? Yes, it's people think that if they've been in a relationship for a certain amount of time, then that ought without getting married, then they automatically acquire certain rights and are considered common law married. And I think that comes up quite a lot on kind of car insurance and house insurance when you're asked for your marital status. That sometimes tends to be like one of the drop down options. Well, really, so so because I I can't remember. Uh, I was only renewing my car insurance the other week. Uh, and it did have a lot of drop-down menus, but I don't remember the, the, the maybe I just skirted past common law marriage. So they will actually have that rather than partner or cohabitate would actually say that, would it? So really, technically speaking, there is no, in law, there isn't really any such thing as a common law marriage. You're either married or you're not married, aren't you, really? For many years, you've also been able to be a registered civil partner uh, as well. So there's registered civil partnership, there's marriage. What's happening here is is that we're, we're coming across people either when they're doing their wills or when somebody's died 
and they are assuming that if they have lived with a person, they've cohabited with somebody, or as they would say, you know, it's a common law marriage, that, that what, they'd inherit the whole estate or they'd inherit a significant chunk of the estate? Yes, there's two aspects to it. There's kind of the inheritance tax consequences. So if they did leave everything to their partner, then that wouldn't qualify for spouse exemption. Because they're not married and they're not registered civil partners? No. Okay. And also, you'd probably come across this more at the estate administration phase, but if they were having to rely on the intestacy rules, then the intestacy rules don't make provision. It is only for spouses. So they end up with nothing. Yeah, so the intestacy rules, those are, if there's no will, those are the rules that say who gets what when you die because you haven't done a will saying who gets what. Okay, and so under the intestacy rules, if you're not married, the intestacy rules make no provision at all, do they? for a surviving cohabity, a surviving partner? No, it just follows, it would just follow the bloodline. So children, parents, siblings, and then you're kind of getting a bit more remote kind of aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews. Yeah. yeah. So you could have lived with someone for years and years and years, but if you weren't married, and again, I should say, or all registered civil partners, that person will inherit absolutely nothing. And there is an assumption, um, not, I mean, you know, some people would think, well, they would automatically receive something, uh, wouldn't wouldn't they? Yes, I came across a case actually recently, and it was the nieces and nephews that ended up inheriting right and um, i think luckily in this situation the nieces and nephews had then arranged to do a deed of variation okay so that the partner did end up receiving some of the estate but that is obviously at the niece and nephew's discretion and they i think they just did that out of the goodness of their heart in that event excellent excellent okay well it's not excellent i mean the point here is take some advice don't make assumptions we're always saying do a will <laughs> You know, it might be that you end up not doing the will, but before you just make the decision not to do the will, take the advice, get the advice to find out whether you're running a risk or not. If you are not married or you're not registered as a partners, then you could be running, you know, mammoth risks, couldn't you, in terms of uh, of, of not doing doing a will? And you touched on that as well earlier. The inheritance tax implications. Again, I often have discussions with uh, unmarried couples. You're looking at the value of their collective estates you know when you add everything together again they're assuming maybe there wouldn't be an inheritance tax problem on the first death because they want to leave everything to the survivor Uh, and then you're having this conversation with them you're saying well actually it isn't going to work like that it would work if you were married or you were registered civil partners and you left everything to you know to the survivor on the first death you get a spouse exemption but unless you are actually married unless you are actually registered civil partners just because you're cohabiting, and you may have been cohabiting for years, it won't give you that, uh, that, that exemption, which can be quite valuable. Have you come across cases like that? Yes, um, I've currently got um, an administration and as you say, they were together for, they were a couple that were together for 30 years. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But now that the first one of them has passed away, it is, they're quite close to the threshold, but it is looking like inheritance tax may be due on that estate okay even though the majority is being left to the partner gosh okay okay so again that's a case where you need to take some advice have you ever had had a couple come to see you where they're not married they are taking advice you're talking about their wills uh you you advise them about 
the inheritance tax situation and what might happen on the first death and the absence of the spouse exemption unless they're married or registered civil partners and then they come back to you and say actually we've decided we're going to get married or we are going to register a civil partnership yes um i have had that and yeah they came back to me married i had like i say it's a, it can be quite an awkward conversation <laughs> it's not easy. well it depends <laughs> yeah, no. you get the vibe from the room at the time <laughs> yes, yeah. you do have to read the room yeah it's gone but i've had it go both ways um a few times people have said oh that's that's great we were thinking about that anyway and then the next time you see them they have they have registered or, or, or they've, they've married. I think I've had one, maybe two, where we had an initial meeting and I said, oh, well, you are aware that you may have this inheritance tax issue that you won't get an exemption on the first death if you leave everything to the survivor, um, but you could fix that uh, by registering a civil, well, possibly it was even before the, the Civil Partnership Act. Anyway, you, you could fix that by getting married. One of them looked quite pleased about that. The other didn't, and I never heard from them again. <laughs> okay, so, so the, the theme there is really take advice, don't just assume when you hear phrases that you may have heard on tele programs, you might see in your insurance documentation that they necessarily have any legal bearing. Uh, actually, the, rea- the reality is you're either married or you're registerable partners or you're not. And the implications of the differences can be they could be life-changing, couldn't they, really? If you were, um, you know, that scenario that, that you've, you've, you've pointed out with the, um, the, the the nephew and niece, I think you said it was, who inherited, uh, where there was the person who had been the partner of the deceased for many years. If the nephew and niece had not been as kind as they were and decided to redistribute, they decided to redirect their entitlement in favour of the surviving partner would there be anything that the partner you know the surviving partner could do i mean i know they don't inherit anything under the intestacy rules but do they have any other course open to them because otherwise it seems incredibly harsh yes they do there is a act in place it's called the inheritance financial provisions act of 1975 yeah they're the same i know they're the right words but i just don't know if they're in the the right order it's the right year it's the right year the words are right yeah slightly uh uh, again you can tell we're not contentious probate specialists we know enough uh to do wills yeah so it's inheritance provision for family independence Act, 1975 um yeah So that allows certain categories of people to bring a claim against the estate if they feel that they have not received um, a reasonable provision. Mm -hmm. So as a person who would have lived with the deceased as husband and wife for a period of at least two years, Mm -hmm. then there is recourse available to them if they did want to bring a claim against the estate. And the claim is for, for, for such financial provision as is reasonable. So that would be, if it goes to court, and most cases, are actually settled, aren't they, without actually getting to court. But if it goes to court, it's a judge to decide what's reasonable financial provision given all the circumstances. But yes, they've got to have lived for two years, haven't they? But what a route to have to go down, uh, you know, rather than having a will in place that says, I'm leaving this to this person. The idea that you'd have to litigate instead or, or potentially litigate with all the hassle and the stress and the and the cost involved and the risk, it's not a route that anybody would, would, would choose to go down, is it? 
No, especially it's probably such an emotional time for you anyway and stressful without this added uncertainty about what your future may hold and what it would look like. No, absolutely. Okay. So other claimants under that would be children or people who've been treated as children of the family. Yeah. I.e. stepchildren and yeah. people who've been financially maintained. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not a free for all. You can't just say, Oh well, I think I should have been left something by that person and uh yeah okay so that's common law marriage and a bit on the intestacy rules and and as ever us saying for goodness sake take advice and 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 uh and do a will um don't leave it to chance another uh, myth or misconception that we come across I suppose, is in relation to wills and lasting powers of attorney and and people kind of getting, is it a misconception? It might be more of a mix-up about what they are and what the responsibilities are and what you know what attorneys can do have you have you come across stuff like that yes sometimes you will have a client come in because they want to make a lasting power of attorney and then they'll say to you i want to prepare this document so my son can look after my affairs after i've passed away and you have to explain actually once you were to pass away then the lasting power of attorney would cease and that is when a will would come into play. They need to prepare both types of document and people are often don't realise that they are actually two separate documents. Yeah, no, that's right. You get it both ways, don't you? You you, you get that the people saying, well, why do I need a power of attorney when I've done the will? Or why do I need the will when I've done the power of attorney? Or why do I need executors? Because I've got these attorneys. And so the explanation, as you said, is, well, the attorneys, um, there are similarities, aren't they? Because your attorneys and your executors, they're acting in a fiduciary capacity, aren't they? They've got this responsibility, but the attorneys are managing your affairs for you, for your benefit whilst you're alive. Their authority stops the moment that you die. And then it would be your executors who would be dealing with things there. um, And they're winding things up. And they are, um, they're not managing your affairs or making decisions for your benefit. They're winding up the estate. They're seeing, you know, your, your, all your debts are, are settled, your funeral expenses are paid, your inheritance tax is sorted out. Um, and then what's left is then distributed as per the terms of the will. They're charged with the responsibility of seeing that the people who you want to receive your estate, that you're gifting it to, receive what they're meant to get. Uh, and of course, the attorneys are not charged with anything to do with making gifts. They can't make gifts, can they? So there's a crossover in in, in terms of the role and the responsibility, but there are significant differences. But attorney's authority ends the minute that you die. Yes, it can make the transition easier if they are the same person because they already have that knowledge. But by having them as separate, it allows you to appoint different people to be your attorneys and executors so maybe if you do have a child that lives more locally Mm -hmm. they're more on hand so would be ideal to deal with your attorney ship on a day-to-day matter but then when it comes to your estate you may want to include all of your children if they did live further afield or something like that so it provides flexibility as well yeah yeah that's that's right yes you might want to have the same people but you might want to have different different people and there might be very good reasons for doing either of those things so yeah and and yeah we do come across that a bit don't we people get a bit sometimes it's just a a confusion between the terminology they know that they know the roles and they know the different roles but uh, occasionally you you might have a, a difficult conversation with somebody after you know they're reporting the death of a loved one and, and then they're assuming that they're going to carry on and deal with things and, and be responsible because they're a, the attorney. 
but you're having to have a difficult conversation with them and say, well, hang on a minute, actually, no, I can no longer take instructions from you. It's the executors. Well, aren't I, aren't I responsible? I was the attorney for 10 years and I was dealing with everything. Well, actually, the will does not appoint you as the executor and I can't talk about anything to do with the will unless or until I've got instructions from the person or the people who are actually the executors. So... Yeah, and you probably find that when people haven't um, reviewed their will regularly, so they yes. may have made it 20 years ago yeah. and appointed a sibling or maybe a friend because their children were underaged at that point, but then they've got older and um, the children have then been appointed as an attorney. And then, like you say, once they've passed away, unfortunately, the children don't have, aren't the executors and don't have that access to deal with the estate. Another one that we come across a bit, actually quite regularly, this one, is using bank accounts after somebody's died. I mean, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It sounds like we're, we, we come across regularly people stealing money from their loved ones. Um, I don't think that that's what we're coming across, really. You talk a bit about this. No, like I said, I don't, th- I don't think it's done maliciously. But I think when someone dies, most people panic about the funeral and making sure the funeral's paid. Yeah. So you tend to find that the executors are continuing to put off notifying the banks that the, that the deceased has passed away in order for them to make some last minute utility payments or to make sure the funeral has been paid. Um, but they don't seem to realise that actually funerals are one of the few things that can be paid once the account has been frozen so and funeral directors are aware of the situation if you provide your bank um, a copy of the funeral invoice then the bank will arrange to pay that directly to the funeral director so there's no need to kind of put off freezing the accounts and it's sort of the same with utility companies as well that they're quite happy to freeze the account either until money becomes available or if a pro- if it, the property is then sold that's right the funeral directors they they, they it's not a big problem getting them paid it's a bigger problem isn't it not registering the death certificate with the bank because of the risk that actually some an unscrupulous person could actually empty the bank account and you know you might not then know that that's happened and the money's gone and it's lost to the estate so actually do register the death certificate as soon as possible uh, then funeral directors, it's not difficult for, uh, to arrange for them to be paid. The utility companies can generally be managed, most of them. Not every single utility company, but most of them have very good bereavement teams who wants you through to them. They're trained to a, a higher level maybe than other operatives that might work for the utility company and more understanding and more patient. And they will put a hold on accounts, uh, it's very rare where you're dealing with a utility company that behaves like pirates after somebody's died. Actually, yeah, register the death with the banks, other financial authorities, as, as soon as possible, because otherwise, the, you know, it's the, the, the risk the risk is greater. That the, the issues about not being able to access funds are less of a problem than the risk, I think, of, of not registering the death certificate. I mean, occasionally we see people who are actually. Okay, what's the way to say this? You know, they're they're actually taking cash. They're using the card, aren't they? They're using the deceased debit card. And you can see when you do in the estate accounts that post-death, they have been using the debit card to take money out of the cash point. Is there anything dishonest going on there? Well, sometimes it could be. And that's the point about registering the death certificate, okay? 
mostly when people are doing that, it's the same kind of issue. They're worried about being able to pay for things. They're worried about being able to, like you said, pay for utilities, et cetera, et cetera. But they really shouldn't be taking the money out of the bank account. Some people, it's, you know, they might be beneficiaries and they're awarding themselves an early interim payment. <laughs> but you know, those things really shouldn't be happening. So this isn't really a misconception or myth thing, really. It's a case of good sense and risk management. Register the desiccate with the bank. It will mean you can't use the accounts, but it should be fine. And inheritance tax is another worry, isn't it, that you won't be able to pay the inheritance tax. But again, in the same way that you can get money released from bank accounts after somebody's died to pay the funeral account without too much trouble, the banks are really obliged to release funds directly to the revenue to pay if you've got to pay an inheritance tax liability and you've got to do that before you can get the grant of probate and you need the grant of probate in order to close the account. So those things can be managed without an enormous amount of rigmarole. So yes, register their secrets with, uh, with banks and other financial authorities as, as soon as possible. Uh, there's another f- f- funny idea. It's sort of related to using the bank account post-death or worries about what's going to happen or we won't be able to access anything. Thinking about a family member, really, where they thought it's a few years ago and their advice to their nearest and dearest was, you know, when I die, you must empty the house of of all the belongings because what's going to happen, they told their nearest and dearest, is that that the minute that I die, the revenue will will find out I've died and they will come and they'll either take everything or they'll want to value everything directly themselves and they'll put an inflated value on everything. So you must get a truck the minute I die and take all the furniture out and I've labelled everything with, you know, where it's to go or who's to... It's like, no, for goodness sake, no, that's actually do not do that for a variety of reasons. Actually, I've had a similar conversation with a client recently and it it was where we started talking about lasting powers of attorney and she hadn't got a will and her she wanted just one of her children to receive the money. So she was going to tell him when she died to use the power of attorney to empty the accounts yeah. and give it directly to him. Yeah. And I had to point out to her that, no, how would you justify using the Latin power of attorney yeah. for her benefit and to act in her best interest by giving all the money to yourself if she was still alive at this point? Mm-hmm. Or if she had passed away, then the power would cease and he wouldn't be able to access the funds anyway. In some cases, that might be okay because... Like you said, your attorneys and your executors might be the same people. And you might have one attorney who's also your executor on your will. And they might be your sole beneficiary. But it's equally likely that they're not. Or they might not know. So they might be emptying the bank account. And there might be a load of people who are meant to receive that in due course. And the money's gone. There might be some dishonesty involved there. There might not be. But for goodness sake, you know, don't be emptying accounts and don't be using accounts post-death people, please. Also, it's a real pain when we come to do the estate accounts, trying to work out where all this money has gone and account for it and deal with it. And there is always a trail and and you will be able to follow it, you know, if if, if you're uh, assiduous enough. And that's, you know, it's the same actually for um, attorneys uh, whilst somebody's alive and managing affairs. And again, it might be an attorney who's different from the ultimate executors and the ultimate beneficiaries. But if you, if you were not a good person, if you were not an attorney who was doing what you're meant to be doing and acting in the best interests of the person who's granted the power of attorney and you were actually helping yourself to the, to the money, 
it will all be found out. It will all be possible to follow the money and follow the audit trail. And it might not happen until the person dies. But when they do, the executives can look back and they'll be able to trace the money. The money may have gone, but, you know, you don't think that it's a, an untraceable... Well, no, that would be a crime. You know, it's not an untraceable crime. Uh, whether the money can be recovered is is another question. Without breaching confidences, I have seen the odd case where that has happened. And fortunately, if that's the right word, the attorney who had been helping themselves to the money whilst the deceased was alive, they were a beneficiary of the estate. So what it meant was the way that the money was recovered was they got a lot less on their distribution on the estate than they otherwise would have received. Maybe they thought they were giving themselves an advance payment. I don't know. But what they did was wrong and it wasn't difficult to follow it. Let's move on to a happier subject. This doesn't come up very often, but occasionally we still get the, um, the you know, we get a call saying such as we're informed about the, uh, about the death and, uh, and then people will have a number of questions. And one of them still might is sometimes, you know, when is there going to be a reading of the will? When are we all going to meet at the solicitor's office or at the, I don't know, in Middlemarch or Dickens, it would be in a, in, in a pub, a pub, and have the reading of the will. But have you ever done a reading of the will? No, I've not done a reading of the will. I think I've come close when you've walked into reception, there's a lot more people than you expected. Yeah, yes. Okay. People might think uh, badly of us for for, for chuckling uh, because again, this is uh, the people have died. But you know, I, I'm chuckling because again, it reminds me not just of you know Dickens or George Eliot, but but also Hercule Poirot in the you know Agatha Christie. There's always a will reading in those stories. It's there's always something involving a will. I came across one the other day on a I was on a radio adaptation, and not only were they reading the will of, I mean, they generally they've been murdered, haven't they? This particular individual that they were reading the will of, they hadn't been murdered, but Hercule was pretending that they had been murdered. So they hadn't even been murdered. They weren't even dead and they were reading the will. So anyway, we, we don't do will. I mean, would we do will reading? If somebody paid us, we'd do will readings, wouldn't we? Yeah, if I the imagine they probably don't want to pay us, though. Well, they don't. They're not for that. You know, if the executor said we'd love to, we'd love to book a, a lovely tavern somewhere, <laughs> and uh, and the estate will gladly pay to read the will to these people who will all turn up in Dickensian costume. Um, we would gladly do that, but uh, most people are not willing to pay for the for the privilege. So, what happens in in practice? What 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 actually happens? And um, we would have the initial meeting with just the executors of the will. Then, in due course, we would look to write to the potential beneficiaries of the will to let them know of their entitlement. Yeah as opposed to them coming into the office. Yes, altogether. altogether. But yes, occasionally, yes, you do have a, uh, you go down to reception for the meeting and there are, everybody has actually come to the meeting, but uh, but it's it's a meeting, isn't it? Rather than, a, rather than a formal will reading. Here's another one. Next of kin. Is there such a thing as next of kin? What, because you hear that all the time, don't you? Yeah, you do, especially kind of with hospitals and things. But no, that also doesn't actually hold a legal definition. I think that comes more into play with kind of health and welfare, lasting powers of attorney, where someone believes that 
someone has been registered as their next of kin at the hospital so that so the doctor will be able to discuss that with them and they sometimes think that carries through to other aspects of their life as well kind of bank accounts maybe or things like that yeah and um yeah it's, you, you do get it don't you when 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 people have died people thinking oh well i'm i'm next of kin you you might see it in you know death in service benefit payments they might even on their forms that you're being asked to complete you know for works pensions or insurance stuff you know there might be where there's a discretion for the trustees of that scheme as to who they pay out to they might actually use it in in the forms that you that you're asked to fill in to say why you think you know this person is is deserving of of their discretion but there's no legal definition you know there's on the rules of intestacy there are there's this sort of family tree isn't there of who's entitled to your estate when you've gone and the priority and how that works and and that order of priority also determines who would fall into the shoes that you'd have uh, the the equivalent of the executor so the personal representative so you haven't got a will so you haven't said who who your executor is so those rules who say who gets what would also determine who's responsible for it but there isn't really any such thing as next of kin but you do hear it you hear it a lot I don't know if it's on insurance forms, but uh, it might be on life insurance forms, but it shouldn't be anyway. And I think it can cause confusion sometimes where there is a will, where there's a will, but because the form refers to a next of kin, Mm -hmm. then a child may feel like they're entitled, fall into that category of next of kin, Mm -hmm. whereas actually there's a will. And we have seen cases where a child has tried to kind of administer a state as next of kin. Okay. Without either without knowing there is a will in play. Yes. Yeah. Well, that yes, that that, that or and uh, either without knowing or deliberately. I yeah, I've I've avoiding. I have yes uh, come across that where somebody's known that there's a will and then um and then they've gone off and they they have administered things and and, and administered the estate and unfortunately the estate has gone and been spent uh, and no longer recoverable before anybody's realised that it's been administered as an intestacy rather than uh, rather than under the terms of the will again it takes you know, it pays to take advice it pays to manage risk how can you protect against that sort of thing happening ultimately if somebody's fast enough and dishonest enough it might be difficult to completely stop that there's now a national will register which is not a compulsory thing you're not required to register uh, your will. We recommend that people do, once they've done their will, register the will with this scheme. You have to pay for it, but it's, um, but the idea is to try and lessen the risk that either the wrong will gets proved when somebody dies, because that can happen, uh, that, that because there's a, you know, a later will that nobody knew about, or that it's assumed that the person didn't have a will, um, but actually they have done a will. It's just tucked away in a solicitor's strong room and had been there for years and nobody knew about it. So this, it's certainty, isn't it? So we we, we offer that as a service um, and we think it's a pretty good thing. And the insurers like it as well, because again, if you end up administering the estate either under an out-of-date will and there's a super, you know a will that supersedes that or on the basis of an intestacy because you haven't found out or taken the trouble to find out whether there is actually a will it could cost you thousands 
tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are insurers, very much like uh, the will registration scheme. Because you can do a search, can't you, as well, you can. to help yeah. if you yeah. are if you are dealing with administering an estate, you can search the register to see, like you say. I get this occasionally. People thinking that your beneficiaries cannot be your executors. Do you, do you come across that? Yes, yeah, so that is quite a common question, and we always say that. Of, of course you can have your executors as your beneficiaries we kind of emphasize that they are kind of two different hats and they are different roles and um, but there's no reason why your beneficiaries cannot also be your executors yeah no, absolutely they are they are different roles aren't they so the executors we talked about earlier on there they're responsible for carrying out your wishes and winding up the estate and there might be good reason why you might not want your beneficiaries to be your executors. Uh, there might be very, very good reasons. But, but actually, most people, and we've talked about this on, on earlier podcasts, most people would, if they've got children, want to leave their estate ultimately to their children. And therefore, most people would want the children who are receiving the estate to be the people responsible for, for winding it up. And there is no reason why the same people who are receiving the estate can't be the executors. But again, it, there might be very good reasons why you want different people to carry out that role. I suppose one reason why that misconception might arise is because of concerns about who can witness the will. Because that's a different thing entirely, isn't it? But it might be that, that people are thinking, oh, well, witnesses, beneficiaries, there's some kind of crossover there. Now, there is an issue, isn't there, about beneficiaries witnessing wills? Yes, a beneficiary cannot witness the will, because I suppose there's the element then of undue influence or coercion, or in that they force the person to write the will and leave them that gift. Mm-hmm. If a beneficiary does witness the will, then the will itself doesn't fail in its entirety, but that beneficiary's gift would fail under the will. And that does also extend to any beneficiaries, spouses or civil partners. Right, okay. Because with the, you tend to find this more if the will has been sent out to a client to sign at home and if they haven't got many um, friends or neighbours available, then they can struggle to find witnesses. And even though we do state independent witnesses, some people might turn to a beneficiary or even a spouse as a witness to the document. We like it really when people come into the office and we can supervise the execution of the will and we can make sure they've got the right number of witnesses and we are never left anything in a will because that's another no-no, isn't it? <laughs> so, so, so we can be witnessing it or we can provide two witnesses but you know fairly often we will be sending out wills and we send them out with detailed instructions and we mark them all up uh, and it is this thing of the witnesses must be independent and they must all be in the room you must all be in the room at the same time there's cases about people signing the will and one of the witnesses went off to put the kettle on whilst the other witness was signing and actually that could invalidate the will so um, you've got to be really really careful about this stuff so that might be um where that 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 concern about whether beneficiaries can be executives as well uh, comes from well there we go well i'm sure there are lots of other myths and misconceptions out there about private client stuff and wills and related documents and, and activities but that's just a, a gander through the ones that i think we see most often uh, isn't it i'd like to thank you 
Amy, for, for, for being here and, and giving us the benefit of your expertise and for doing it at such short, short notice. You're, you're absolutely, you're a top, a top person, such, such short notice and not even just putting it together, but coming up with the idea as well. So thank you very much indeed. And uh, yes, if there's anybody out there in podcast land who wants to instruct us and pay for us to do a will reading in full Victorian garb, um, we're, we, are, we are up for that. We, People yes, and willing. Absolutely. So uh, yes, contact us by carrier pigeon <laughs> or by, uh, by Royal Mail with a penny black stamp on it. Um, we're, 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 we're still up for that. Thanks to Edward and Amy for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to our team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases when they come out every Monday. Speak to you next week. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.